Well, I am very excited to uh, share with you this morning. My name is Nathaniel Swain. I'm the intern here. Some of you are probably like, this guy's got to stop telling us his name. We've already figured it out. We've got it memorized already. Um, but yes, I am super excited. Super, my uncle said not to say super, so I'm going to say it four times. Um, <laughs> let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to share your word. Um, to see what you have for us. I pray that you would soften our hearts and that we would just um, come away from this loving you more and wanting to love the people around us more as well, because that's why we are here. Um, We're thankful for you. In your name I pray. Amen. So let's talk books or uh, TV shows if it's more relevant to you. The first time I ever read a big novel probably in seventh grade, and it was one of those novels that has a a number of different characters whose storylines are interwoven, sometimes they're separate, sometimes they're they're together. But that was the first type of story of that kind that I had ever read, read. And the first maybe two or three chapters were about one character, and then it switched to another character, but I didn't notice that it switched. And so I spent probably until the halfway point of the book, trying to figure out why this person kept changing their name, kept changing where they lived and what they were doing. I doubt anyone else has done that. (laughs) Television shows, which might be more relevant to some of you, um, do that as well, um, but it's a little bit easier to see. Um, They will have, if you have maybe... 10 different characters. You'll have different groups of them who all have their own storyline. They're important to the story for a reason, and so they're, 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 they sometimes are together, sometimes they're separated, and when they're separated, you might spend an episode on this character group, and then an episode on this character group, and then an episode on this character group, and all of them are important, and the camera is shifting back and forth to, to see the overall progression of the story. Well, in Acts 8... Um, we will see a continuation of that. Um, So if you would like to turn to Acts 8. We spent two weeks in Acts so far. Basically, if you go to about the two-thirds mark of your Bible and then go right. It's four letters. We spent two weeks in Acts. And Acts is is interesting because it's a narrative, so it's a story um, a lot of times, things that we study are um, written as letters, and so they're, they're strict commands or principles, and so you read it and you say, do this or don't do that. It's pretty simple. You just do that or don't do that. But with a story, there's so much richness to it because there's so many things that you can learn from people's daily lives. And acts much like a good TV show or a novel, switches between different people's storylines to show the overall flow of the the story. At the beginning of Acts, in Acts 1-8, first chapter, verse 8, Jesus tells his disciples that you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so that will be the flow of the book as Jesus sends his people out to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now, in the first five chapters, um, 
two weeks ago, we saw the coming of the Spirit on the, the apostles and then of the other Jews in Jerusalem. And in one day, it says that there was 3,000 people that were saved. I mean, that's, if you want to talk about revival, that's, that's a pretty good sermon. Um, the church in Jerusalem has grown and it is successful. But then last week, we meet a character named Stephen who comes into conflict with those who don't particularly like his message, and he is murdered, stoned to death by a mob. And so for the first time, the church is fearing for their lives. Um, There's a man at the beginning of chapter 8, which we will talk about next week, named Saul, who makes it his business to persecute the church. So he goes around to Christians' houses drags them off, and sends them to prison. So for the first time, the church is not just able to exist in peace, but they're actively being persecuted for their faith. And the response is to scatter. As God has done and will do many times more, when the church gets concentrated in one area, he sends persecution and they head to the corners of the earth. And today we're going to see a character named Philip who was one of Stephen's co-workers. He's one of those seven characters that were chosen to help the widows. He's a person of character, and he's going to go on an adventure, and he's going to run into three different characters. Three different characters. He's going to run into the people of Samaria, the Samaritans. He's going to run into Simon, the sorcerer. And lastly, we will see the Ethiopian eunuch. All three of these people respond in different ways to the message that Philip will bring. So in verse 4, Philip goes to Samaria. In verse 4, notice how the Christians, the Christians in Jerusalem respond to the persecution. Verse 4 says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. If I was being threatened with my life or being put into jail, I might hide. I probably wouldn't continue doing what I was doing, but more visibly. But these guys do. And Philip, who's one of them, goes down to Samaria and proclaims to them the Christ. I think it's important to talk about who the Samaritans were. In our, in our culture, we have the word Good Samaritan. I actually saw a, a short video on Facebook about I uh, said a good local good Samaritan, and it was some people helping another person's car out of the ditch. And that's kind of what a good Samaritan is in our world. But I don't think that would compute in those days because Samaritans and Jews didn't get along. Um, just to simplify who the Samaritans were, um, back when Israel was taken over by an enemy power, there were some people that were left in the land, and they stayed there. And over time, other people groups moved into Israel with them. And so the people who remained became intermingled with the pagans. And so their religion mutated, their culture changed. Um, They had their own place of worship. And so when the Jews, who were um, ethnically very homogenous, they they stayed together. They saw these mixed half-breeds. They looked at them with, um, with disdain. 
And so the concept of a, of a good Samaritan probably wouldn't, wouldn't compute. Somebody would be like, a good Samaritan? Isn't that an oxymoron? A Samaritan is by definition not good. And if you are good, well then obviously you're not a Samaritan. But Philip responds. Look how he responds. He goes straight for the heart of their place. He proclaims to them the message of Christ. They respond. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him, saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And there was much joy in that city. Philip goes, and the people respond. He probably didn't expect them to respond in the way that they did. I think the Samaritans could not receive Christ. In verse 12, we see that they believed him as he preached the good news and they were baptized. The response to the working of the gospel, the power of of the message of Jesus Christ, was that even these people responded in faith. However, in verse 14, we see an addition to the story. When the apostles, in verse 14, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So Peter and John are up in Jerusalem. And they hear word that Samaria has accepted Jesus, that people are repenting and turning to Christ. And it may not have seemed believable, so they go. And they put their hands on them, and the Samaritans receive Jesus. I don't think there's necessarily a good comparison in our culture to how separate these people groups were. Um, I don't think there's people groups, at least in our country, who hate each other as much as these did, perhaps. But let's think on a more personal level. I think we've all got people in our lives that we don't deem lovable, that are not easy to be around. Do we respond to them with love? Do we reach out to them or do we keep away from them? The Samaritans had to verify, or the apostles had to verify that the Samaritans were truly saved. And this brings up an interesting thought, something that will be seen in the rest of the New Testament, where you have Jews and Gentiles who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ together. These people groups were very, very different. We are probably all Gentiles. We're all similar culture. But Jews and Gentiles didn't mix. But suddenly, the people of God is made up of people who are very different from each other. You have the Jews who had come from a very religious upbringing. They obeyed, what, 600 laws. They were very put together, polished. And then you have the Gentiles who come from paganism. 
These groups looked, groups looked very different. But with the coming of the Spirit and the relationship with Jesus Christ, they were now both part of the family of God. If you have grown up in church and you know how to look the look, walk the walk, talk the talk, and you know how to put up that, that good outward perfection, then perhaps you were in the same state that the Jewish believers were. They saw these new Gentile Christians coming into the family of God and they said, what? These people don't look like us. They look very different. In the same way, we see Christians who are very different from us. If you are like the first group, and you see Christians who are new coming to faith, and perhaps in your eyes they don't look lovable, they don't look clean, and you think, well, I don't want to, they don't look like me. I'm just going to stay with my own people that look like me. The question is, how will you respond to that? Do you hold to your culture and the way that you want a Christian to look and stay away from them? Or do you reach across those boundaries and love and encourage them? Perhaps you're not. Perhaps you're new to a relationship with Jesus Christ or you just, you don't feel like you fit into that mold of what some people determine that a Christian should look like. And you say, man, I am on the outside. Again, do you look at people that look different from you and assume malice or ill will on their part? You say, these people look different from me. They're probably judging me. As a matter of fact, they probably don't like me. They probably look down on me. So therefore, I'm just going to stay separate and stay away from them. Both of these groups struggle with the same thing. Two people who are very different from each other and are now united under one spirit and are called to be one. This is the world that we live in. This is the people of God that started at Pentecost and is continuing to this day. So the question is, how do we respond when we run into people who are different? Now in Samaria, if we go to our second character, there was a man named Simon. We're going to go back in time a little bit. In verse 9, we are interested, interested, introduced to Simon the Sorcerer. Now, if you ran into somebody who was named Simon the Sorcerer, you'd know this person probably has an epic story. <laughs> verse 9, Simon had previously practiced magic in the city, which is a thing, I guess, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Simon, whether by sleight of hand or by actual powers, had amazed the people of his city with his magic, his sorcery, and was considered great. I think it's interesting just to picture his life. His life was actually probably pretty, pretty well set out. Um, I looked in the original languages, and I actually found that 
in the original languages, he actually had subscribed. He was a writer to Sorcerer's Illustrated, which is a magazine. It's amazing the things you find when you look really closely. Um, He spoke at some of the local colleges because he had his Masters of Divination, which I've (laughs) wanted to say that for a long time. (laughs) But if we think about him, I mean, your life's pretty set. If you're the local, the resident magician, um, you've, got, you've got a lot of perks to your life. Um, but notice how he responds when he sees true power. Philip is performing miracles and signs. Unclean spirits are coming out. And verse 13 tells us that even Simon himself believed And after being baptized, he followed Philip, and seeing signs and miracles performed, he was amazed. So Simon runs into contact with true power of God, and he realizes that what he offers, what he can do, is fake, secondary. I think a lot of times the world promises us things, power, possessions, people. Simon had all of this. But just like when Simon saw the true power of God and he realized that what he had was fake and was useless, um, so also when we truly run into a relationship with God, so many of those things that previously we may have sought after seem less valuable. I wish Simon's story ended here because it's such a good ending. You have the sorcerer who's, you know, in the Old Testament would have been executed for being a sorcerer, but now he's able to receive Christ. He's, he believes, he's baptized, he's following Philip. Oh, and he has to open his mouth. Peter and John are laying their hands on people. The Samaritans are receiving Christ. Simon sees it. When he saw that the Spirit was giving on by the laying of the apostles' hands, he says in verse 19, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. I don't think Peter responded the way that Simon wanted him to. May your silver perish with you, he says, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Verse 24, Simon responds, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may happen to me. And that's the end of his story. That's the end of... That's where the the focus on Simon stops. This was a TV show. That would be his, his glamorous end. We don't really know whether he truly was a follower of Christ. But one thing we do know is he wanted what God offered. He wanted the power that God offered. But we don't see confession. We don't see a desire for a relationship. We don't see him wanting to know God. An illustration of this. My youngest sister, Belinda, who 
is in the room with us right now is notorious for this type of thing. Everyone has experienced when she will walk up to them, she'll have a big, adorable smile, irresistible, unfortunately. She'll put her arm around you, tell you that she loves you and that she likes your hair. And then it happens. Can I watch a movie, please? And you realize that you were taken in. (laughs) But I think the, the parallel is Simon didn't care about knowing God. He wanted the things, he wanted the power, the, the, the magic that Philip was uh, performing. And even more so when he saw what the apostles were doing. And so the question, just to think to ourselves, is do we treat God like this? Do we treat God as our, our resident genie in a bottle? You know, when I need something, I rub my I rub my genie, I put my hands together, and I pray, and I say, God, I know I haven't talked to you much lately, but I need this. Or, God, you know, I, I haven't really been following you, but can you heal this person? Um, children do that. Children don't necessarily care about loving their parents. Um, they just want a bottle. But shouldn't ultimately our desire be that we want God? I think we all do this. I do this a lot, actually. But I think we should look. Like when we, when we think about God, are we thinking about someone that can give us what we need? Or are we thinking about wanting to follow him? I think that's a battle that happens every day in our lives. But that's Simon's story. That's the end of Simon's story. We don't see anything, hear anything more about him. But Philip's story is not over. Because as he's in Samaria, an angel of the Lord in verse 26, could just look instead of trying to guess, comes to Philip and says, Rise and go south to the road to Gaza. Goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. I think it's relevant to put your, your feet in Philip's shoes for a moment. Philip has been in Samaria. He's seeing major revival happening. People are getting saved. The Spirit is coming on them. must have been one of the most exciting times. And suddenly God's like, actually, I need you to leave. And I need you to go to the desert. (laughs) I would rather stay. But he responds by going. And he runs into our third and final character. We saw the Samaritans, we've seen Simon, and lastly we meet an Ethiopian eunuch. Verse 27, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Let's pause to talk about this character for a moment. First of all, He's from a long way away from Israel. Uh, whether Ethiopia in those days was the same as Ethiopia of today, we, I don't know entirely, but it was certainly hundreds of miles from Jerusalem. So he had traveled, and he wasn't just anybody. He was a court official 
to the queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of all her money. So he was probably powerful. He was rich. He was riding in a chariot, which is like a status symbol. And he had traveled hundreds of miles to Jerusalem to worship. He had left home being powerful, having all the perks. But when he arrived at Jerusalem, he would have seen a very different picture. Because first of all, he was a Gentile. Gentiles were kept away from the center part of the temple. But also, he was a eunuch. If you are not familiar with what a eunuch is, um, eunuchs, many times, this was a practice that was carried out. Um, if you want to, if you have a dog that you want to keep from running around with, with other dogs, from running away, if you have a boy dog that you don't want to go chase all the other girl dogs, or a girl dog that you don't want to chase all the boy dogs, you take care of the problem. Um, in a similar way, you know, There's a plethora of ways that I could have gone there. <laughs> but I think the, the idea is past. But that was something, if you wanted to have a bunch of, of men around your wives or around your court, you don't want them to be um, aggressive or anything like that. And so um, making them a eunuch was a practice. But Deuteronomy 23.1 says that Eunuchs were of the uh, similar type of, of, of problems were not allowed in the presence of God. So this person comes hundreds of miles to Jerusalem and arrives as an outsider. He is a Gentile and he is a eunuch. So Philip goes over to him. And asks him if he understands what he is reading. To which the eunuch responds, How can I unless somebody helps me? In verse 32, this is what the eunuch was reading. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch asks, about whom is this speaking? About himself or someone else? And part of me wonders if he sees this person saying that in his humiliation, justice was denied him. And he wondered, who else has experienced the same feeling that I do when I show up at the temple and I have to stay away? because of who I am, because of what has been done to me. And Philip opened his mouth, told him the good news of Jesus. I think the word good news is appropriate here. When we say gospel, good news, we use those, those words because this is a message to people who are outsiders, to people who can't come close to God because of who they are and because what they've done, the message of God coming close to us. 
And the eunuch sees water and he says, what prevents me from being baptized? This isn't a, do I really have to be baptized? It's, no, I have seen this for the first time in my life. This is what I want. Baptize me now. And when they come up out of the water, Philip is taken away. But notice how the eunuch goes home. Verse 39, he goes on his way rejoicing. He goes on his way rejoicing. Why? Because he had traveled to Jerusalem. How many times he had done that, we don't know. But he had traveled to Jerusalem to worship God and had gone from being a person of power, of wealth, to an outsider. And suddenly, that barrier between him and God is removed and he's able to come face to face with his Savior. If perhaps today you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I just want to offer this good news to you. That the message of Christ is not a thing, a list of do's and don'ts, but it's a message of salvation for those who are outsiders. That God wants to be close to you and wants to know you. He did it so much that Jesus was willing to leave his power and his, his glory up in heaven and come down and die for us. If that is something that you have done, let us also remember that we were outsiders. And that just because we might be Christians now, that doesn't mean that we were not outside of God's will at one point in our lives. We were wretched. We were dead in our sins. And the news is good because we were able to come into the presence of God. Are we characterized by joy? If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, joy should be the biggest thing that characterizes you and me. I think this is probably the most hard thing for me because I am a complainer. But how, how much time do we spend complaining and grumbling and being downtrodden when we should be filled with joy? Just like this man went home, and I promise he didn't just stay silent when he got back. What would our lives look like if we were always filled with joy? because of what had been done for us. I want to read one last thing for you. Ephesians 2, you can turn there. You don't have to if you don't want to. Ephesians 2, go to your right, basically, in your Bible. It says this. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and stranger to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's the good news. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the work that you do in our hearts and our lives. Jesus, I thank you for coming and and leaving your power and wealth in heaven and being willing to die for those of us who did not deserve you at all. And I pray that our hearts would be pricked and that we would be characterized by people who love those around us, whether or not they come from the same background of those who are in your family, Lord. And I also pray that we'd be characterized by joy because we need you. In your name I pray, amen.